Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, Second Samuel chapters three and four. Well, a corner is about to be turned in the history of Israel. Second Samuel chapter 3 records the story of the final stage of David's rise to power as the first king of a fully united Israel. Now last week we saw that Abner, the military commander and the real power behind the throne of Ishbosheth, used a somewhat contrived crisis to make a, a move to depose Ishbosheth and turn the northern kingdom over to David. Now the crisis was that Abner went into Ishbosheth's harem that he had inherited from his father, Saul, and he had sexual relations with a woman named Ritzpah, perhaps the most prominent woman in in, in this harem. Now in this era such a thing was done to show total disrespect for the current leadership and to indicate that a new leader had arisen to usurp the old one. In other words, there is no doubt that Abner created an excuse to have a confrontation with Ishbosheth by means of cavorting with Ritzbah so that he could do just what he did transfer Saul's old kingdom from Ishbosheth to David. Now there were several motivations for Abner to do such a thing even though the one he spoke about actually seemed almost righteous in nature. Abner says that the reason he's going to hand over the kingdom to David is because God has made it publicly known that David was to be king over all Israel and therefore Abner was merely acting in obedience to that divine decree. But behind this supposedly pious purpose were a personal agenda and some political realities. For one, we read in verse 17 of chapter 3 that many of the elders of the northern tribes had groused for some time that they preferred David over Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was a weak king, somewhat of an embarrassment. And the people liked what they saw in David. Thus, as we discussed last week, uh, last week, or I guess a couple weeks ago, in tribal societies, the ongoing game is to position yourself, position your clan, your tribe, to be in the good graces of the current leader while remaining on the outlook for a new and stronger leader to ally yourself with for your tribe's benefit. <coughs> now it had become obvious by now that David was the new stronger leader and the northern tribes merely needed a proper shove to move their loyalties to him. Avner was in a similar similar position. He was the leader of the military of the north. And he knew that soon David would overcome them and be king of all Israel. It was customary that the top military commander was second in command to the king. 
But David already had a military commander in good standing in Joab, Joab, David's nephew. So if the kingdom fell to David, Abner was out of a job. On the other hand, if it was Abner who approached David with a gracious offer to bloodlessly deliver the scepter of power to him, perhaps Abner could negotiate a position as second in power in David's administration and thus outmaneuver Joab. So Abner met with the the northern tribal leaders and he told them that he wanted them to agree to make David their king. And then next he went to the leaders of Benjamin who weren't nearly as anxious for this change because it would mean that the throne that had been held by a Benjamite, Saul and Ishbosheth, would be turned over to somebody from the tribe of Judah. All realized that whether they fully agreed or not, if Abner was for it, who could be against it? Thus, Abner paid David a state visit with a distinguished entourage of about 20, about 20 tribal elders. A proper feast was held to commemorate the event and show respect, and it was agreed that these northern tribes would give their loyalty to David. All that was left now was for a general assembly of all the northern coalition leaders to convene to formally confirm David. So David bid his new ally, Abner, farewell, and he guaranteed his safe journey back to his home territory. Let's pick up there in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 22. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 22 is where we'll start. And forward. Just then David's men and Yoav were returning from a raid, bringing a lot of plunder with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron because he had sent him off under safe conduct. Now when Joab and his army arrived, Joab was told, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, but he sent him off and he is left under safe conduct. Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Here, Abner came to you and you sent him away and now he's gone? Why? You know Abner the son of Ner. He came only to deceive you, to learn what campaigns you're planning, to find out everything you're doing. After leaving David, Yoav sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the water cistern at Sirah without David's knowledge. Upon Abner's return to Hebron, Yoav took him aside into the space between the outer and inner gates as if to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the groin so that he died, thus avenging the death of Asahel, his brother. Now afterwards, when David heard of it, He said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent of the death of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it fall on the head of Joab and all his father's family. May Joab's family always have someone with a a hemorrhage or sarat, or who has to walk with a cane, or who dies by the sword, or who lacks food. Thus Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner, because he had killed their brother Asahel during the battle at 
Gibeon. But David said to Joab and to all those with him, Tear your clothes. Put on sackcloth. Mourn over Abner. King David himself walked behind the body as it was carried. They buried Abner at Hebron. The king wept out aloud at Abner's grave, and all the people wept, and this king sang this lament over Abner. Should Abner have died like a thug? Your hands weren't tied. Your feet weren't fettered. You fell like one who falls at the hands of a criminal. And then all the people wept over him more than ever, and all the people came to David and tried to make him eat some bread while it was still daytime, but David swore, May God bring terrible curses down on me, and worse ones yet, if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. All the people took note of this, and it pleased them. Whatever the king did pleased all the people. So that day all the people and all Israel understood that the king had had no part in the killing of Abner, son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, You realize that a leader, a great man, has fallen today in Israel. And even though I have just been anointed king, I feel weak today. And these men, these sons of Zeriah, are too brutal for me. May Adonai repay the criminal as his crime deserves. It's no coincidence that Abner came to David while Joab was away, leading a raiding party. No doubt when Abner sent messengers asking for a meeting, a meeting the cunning David knew that with Yoav present, there'd be no chance for a treaty and Abner likely wouldn't even survive the meeting. Recall that Joab was now in a blood feud with Abner because he had killed Yoav's brother Asahel. So David arranged for Yoav to be gone. But when Yoav returned and heard about Abner's visit, he became furious and he confronted King David. Now verse 22 makes a point that Joab returned with Rav Shalal, meaning a huge abundance, a great amount of captured plunder. So Yoav was feeling pretty proud of himself right about now, no doubt brimming with confidence. And then he finds out that behind his back, this meeting with his mortal enemy has taken place. One must look at the tone of Joab's words and notice somewhat of a parallel with the way that Abner spoke to Ishbosheth. See, just as Abner was so incensed, although I think he was embellishing it a little bit, and felt so free to openly speak his mind to the king, so we see Joab being surprisingly strong and freely expressing his indignation with his words to King David. Now on the surface, it seems as though Joab is sincerely concerned that Abner came merely to discover David's military plans and David played the dupe to Abner's cleverness. But in fact, although the English hides it, 
there is a sarcastic and offensive sexual undertone in Joab's remarks. Although women may not always be aware of it, men often insult one another by saying that they are behaving as females or serving as a female in a sex act. Now, as unsavory as all this is, it's hardly a modern phenomenon. It likely goes back to the second or third generation of humans. Verses 24 and 25, you see. Have Yoav complained to David that Abner came to you, that he only came to deceive you? Actually, what it says more literally is... Abner went into you because he only came to seduce you. The words used are nearly identical and are meant to be taken in the same sense as when Ishbosheth accused Abner of seducing and going into Ritzpah, Saul's concubine. I don't think I need to draw this picture with any more detail. The point is that Joab was amazingly brazen in this insult of King David and David is amazingly silent as there is no record of David responding as one might think he would to such blatant insubordination, family or not. But one must also understand what was going through Joab's mind and the stakes that were involved here. He too understood that if two kingdoms, the north and the south, combined under one king, there wasn't going to be room for two top military commanders. There can't be two seconds in command. So he instantly suspected, rightly so, that Abner was there to negotiate his way into Joab's position. And since David had deceived Joab by sending him away so that Abner could come, he naturally thought that his worst suspicions were coming about. Wouldn't you? Now this firm conviction had a lot to do with what comes next. Joab was not going to go down without a fight. He wasn't David's top military commander because he could be easily run over by a competitor. Joab sent some messengers after Abner, apparently lying to him, telling him that David needed him to come back. Abner had traveled only a few miles up the road leading to a place called the cistern at Sirah. And when Abner arrived back at Hebron, expecting all was well, Joab greeted him and he drew him aside to a a private place between the inner and outer city gates. A place where they could have a moment of privacy. Not suspecting anything. The great warrior Abner was at ease. Joab struck. Joab killed two birds with one stone, pardon the pun. By slaying Abner, he not only did away with his rival 
for his job as David's number two man, but he also did his duty in his eyes as the family Goel Hadam, the family blood avenger. Joab avenged his brother Asahel's death at Abner's hands. Now there's some symbolism here about Joab killing Abner at the city gates. First is that by stabbing Abner near the fifth rib, it says, he pierced Abner in exactly the same place Abner pierced Asahel. Second, the city gate was the customary place in the Middle East where court was convened and decisions were handed down by the elders. So the idea is that the city gate's the place where justice is meted out. To Joab, he was bringing Abner to justice at the place of justice, the city gates. But was justice actually being served? I say no. This wasn't justice at all. It was pure revenge. And it was wrong. See, this is one of those many cases that I suggested a while back that you watch for as we proceed. Because the Torah law is being twisted and and turned and degraded and molded to fit all kinds of comfortable and long-held Middle Eastern customs of all kinds. Just as do Christians today. Israelites then had little trouble rationalizing their actions that were so normal for their ancient societies by by painting a, a face of piety on what was nothing more than worldly pagan behavior by adding some Hebrew religion to it. Somehow by assigning a biblical name or misapplying a scripture passage that was taken out of context, a wrongful behavior was made not only right, but even good, maybe even pleasing to Yehovah. The Torah law is very clear that death in battle is justifiable killing. It is not murder. There's no criminality to it. There's no atonement necessary for it. And it was not what the laws concerning the blood avenger and those sanctuary cities were established to deal with. Sanctuary cities were meant to deal with what today we might call manslaughter. Matters of accidental or unintended or perhaps negligent homicide. Just as sanctuary cities were not for the purpose of protecting murderers who lay in wait for their victims, neither were they for protecting warriors who had killed an enemy in the heat of battle. And this is because warriors who killed in battle did nothing wrong. They needed no protection. Thus, when in battle, Azahel, recall the story, chased down Abner with the intention to kill him. And Abner pled with Azahel. He says, turn away. Turn away. Go get somebody else. He wouldn't listen. Thus in battle, even in self-defense, really, 
Abner killed Asahel. That Yoav, Asahel's anguished brother, deemed this to be an unlawful death worthy of legally sanctioned revenge and that Abner was now to Joab's way of thinking the equivalent of a person who needed to escape to a sanctuary city. This is completely wrong-minded. It's a total perversion of the law. It isn't hard. It isn't that hard to see this sort of thing if we know the Torah when we read these stories. What's harder to see, though, is how we do very similar things in our own lives practically every day. We at times twist and turn the Bible to allow us to have our way and to not appear all that different from our neighbors. We discuss among ourselves as Christian brothers and sisters about how our eyes are the portals into our minds that need to be guarded against unclean things and then we all go see the same Hollywood filth at the movies that our pagan neighbors do. We say we are firm believers in a literal Bible and then claim that we can abolish God's appointed times. Or that we can declare Shabbat as any day of the week that we personally choose, whatever it is for our convenience. As long as we celebrate it generally every seven days. What do you suppose Christ would say about any of our personal, customized Sabbath day and holiday choices that generally dispose of the ones His Father ordained? How about our modern infatuation with accumulating personal wealth that fits nicely in with an all-too-commonly-taught doctrine that God wants and intends for us all to be rich and material possessions. And we will be if we just believe that with enough conviction. We certainly don't see ourselves as unfaithful worshipers remaking God's law in our image any more than Joab did. Cultural customs and cherished symbols are powerful things as are doctrines and traditions and peer pressure. But as the Lord's followers, we are to resist these man-made things when they do not agree with God's word, not make excuses and embrace them. A lot easier said than done, isn't it? Being a leader in any age is a tough deal. One must balance what must be done with what can be done. David had shown the utmost restraint in his dealings with Saul. And now since Saul's death in dealing with Ishbosheth, allowing events to occur naturally under the divinely ordered course. Some of this was due to his devotedness to the Lord, some because of his own character and principles, and some because there were just political realities all right, that had to be considered. 
So when David learned of Abner's death at Yoav's treacherous hands, all sorts of thoughts flooded into his mind just what this was going to mean for him. And of course his first thought was that the northern tribes would view Abner's assassination as David's doing. It was the beginning of cleaning house of any potential threats or competitors in preparation to assume the throne of all Israel. So immediately he declares his innocence of Abner's death and that whatever consequences divinely or fleshly that was due for this act they ought to fall upon Joab and all of his father's family. David then proceeds to issue a kind of a curse, a kind of a standard Middle Eastern way of speaking upon Yoav's family that includes that if someone in it should, should always be suffering from a discharge, Zuv, or from leprosy, Zerat, or that they would need to walk with a cane or maybe somebody who'd be killed in battle or doesn't have enough lechem, bread, food. Let me remind you that the first two sufferings, Zuv and Sarat, are seen as spiritually, not naturally, caused afflictions. And that Zaharat's not leprosy. Okay? It's indicative of a whole range of nasty and debilitating skin diseases and severe rashes. Okay? Like any public politician, David was quickly distancing himself from the actions of someone in his administration that's done something that could be very damaging to him. Now, did David benefit from all this in some way? Perhaps. It certainly further weakened the northern kingdom to lose its legendary military commander. But it could also only cause more difficulty for David than create advantage. How could the northern tribes not be suspicious of Abner's death at Hebron, David's headquarters, despite David's protest that he had nothing to do with it? Verse 30 says in the complete Jewish Bible, Thus, Yoav and Avishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel during the battle in Gibeon. This wasn't put here so as to repeat the facts for future readers. Unfortunately, most English translations miss the point of this passage, which is that a contrast is being presented to clearly differentiate between the nature of these two killings, that of Asahel versus that of Abner. See, the word used describing Abner's death is harag, Harag, and it carries the sense of murder or destruction with it, unjustifiable homicide. The word used to describe Asahel's death is mut, and it leans towards meaning to die or to be executed, justifiable homicide. In fact, the narrator makes it clear that Asahel's death occurred in battle while Yoav and Avishai merely slew Abner in a non-combat situation. Now essentially from here to the end of the chapter is David doing damage control. 
he's making quite a show of sorrow and repugnance in order to distance himself from this dirty deed. Now, no doubt he was being as sincere as he was being pragmatic. He was doing all the things that Middle Eastern and Hebrew culture would instantly understand um, only a sincere man would do. He mourned. He ordered that others mourn. He spoke a proper and respectful eulogy over Abner. He threw an elegant <laughs> and all-encompassing all curse over Abner's killers, even though, by the way, they were his own sister's sons. And he even walked behind Abner's body in funeral procession, the highest honor that a king could confer upon a, the deceased, usually actually reserved only for a, a royal family member. But as we're going to find out later, for instance, in chapter 16 of Second Samuel, not everyone in Israel believed David's story or his innocence in this matter. Chapter 16, we're going to read um, the story of a man named Shimei, a distant relative of Saul who must have been a Benjamite, and how he curses King David, throws rocks at the king and his men, and openly blames him for the deaths of Saul and Ishbosheth. For the most part, though, Verse 35 and 36 make it clear that the people did believe David. And they, they were satisfied that he'd gone out of his way to show the greatest respect to this great warrior who had been a worthy adversary for many years. Even so, David was in a political bind. The last couple of verses show that despite being king of Judah, he had by no means consolidated his power. He knew he needed to punish Joab for committing murder. From the viewpoints of God's Torah justice and to show the North that he was a just and fair man. But these violent sons of Zeruiah, his sister, and apparently that family's position in society, just didn't allow for it at this time. So David said to his servants, meaning those in the king's court, that even though he is the anointed king, that he, he's weak. That he's just not in a position to force his will on this matter at this time. Thus David asks Jehovah to take justice upon these criminals. We're going to get a little ways into... Uh, now, we're going to go ahead and read off chapter 4. We're going to see if we can finish this up quickly. Turn to chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel became alarmed. Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding parties. One called Ba'anah, the other Rechav, sons of Ramon the Beroti of the people of Benjamin, for Beirot is counted as a part of Benjamin, even though the Beirot team fled to Gitaim and lived there as foreigners to this day. Now Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son, and he was lame in both legs. He had been five years old 
when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Yisrael. His nurse gathered him up and fled, but as she was hurrying to get away, he fell became lame. His name was Mephiv-Oshet. The sons of Ramon, the Biroti, Rechav, and Bana went and arrived during the heat of the day at the home of Ishbosheth as he was taking his afternoon rest. And they went right into the house as if they were coming to get wheat and they stabbed him in the groin. And then Rechav and Bana, his brother, escaped. They entered the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, stabbed him, killed him, they beheaded him, took his head and fled all night long along the road through the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David in Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who wanted to take your life. Today Adonai has taken revenge on Saul and his son for the sake of my lord, the king. But David answered Rechav and Bana, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Beer, Roti, as Adonai lives, who has rescued me from every kind of difficulty, when someone told me, Here! Saul's dead, thinking to himself that he was bringing good news. I didn't reward him for his news. But I seized him and killed him in Ziklag. How much more when criminals have killed an innocent man in his own house on his own bed? Shouldn't I hold you responsible for his death and rid the earth of you? David then gave the order to his men and they put him to death, cutting off their hands and feet, hanging them up next to the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's grave in Hebron. Scene now moves to Mahanaim, north of David, over in the Transjordan, where Ishbosheth is ruling from. And we should understand that what we just read is occurring at the same time as some of the final events of chapter 3. Okay? That is, while this funeral was going on, and then afterwards David is lamenting all this, Ishbosheth and the people of the north have received word of Abner's murder, and they're reacting in shock to it. News traveled very fast in those days. It's unimaginable that any more than a day passed, probably a lot less, before the story of Abner's demise reached the citizens north of Judah. Now verse 1 explains that all of Israel became very alarmed, and this is referring to the northern tribal coalition. The people of the north feared that Abner's death was merely the opening volley of David taking revenge for all those years that they had fought against David. Ishbosheth also must have had mixed feelings. Because the man who was in process of taking his kingdom from him was now dead. However, this same man controlled the military. And he had been the de facto power of the north that held that coalition together. Obviously, Ishbosheth had neither the regal bearing to rule, nor the diplomatic skills to maneuver through this minefield of clans and tribes and foreign nations, something, by the way, which Abner was uh, most adept. Ishbosheth knew that when this was all added up, he was in worse shape without Abner than with him. With Abner, he could probably at least remain alive and be treated decently, but without Abner? So now that we know 
that the scene has shifted to the northern headquarters a new elements added. Two scoundrels named Ba'na and Rechav are introduced to us. Their father is Ramon, who is said to come from Beirut. And then to help explain their relationship with Ishbosheth, some tribal and family history is given. Now, Beirut was one of several named villages and towns that fell to the tribe of Benjamin. In Joshua 18:21 to 28 is a listing of cities and towns reckoned to Benjamin by Joshua and in that list we find Beeroth. And the list continues. Um, it seems that in addition to Beeroth, some number of this city's population fled to some place called Gitaim. Right, which was near Beth Haron, just a few miles north of Beeroth. So likely, this was a village that had become now almost abandoned, like a ghost town. Rashi says that this flight of this mixed-race city occurred at the time of 1 Samuel 31, when the Philistines attacked the northern tribes and killed Saul. I say mixed-race because this was a village of Gentiles at the time of Joshua but it was taken over and controlled by the tribe of Benjamin. Apparently, this little village, Beeroth, as did so many, assimilated into the Israelite tribe that occupied their land. Now recall that we are at a time in 2 Samuel that is at least three centuries since Joshua crossed over the Jordan. So there's been a whole lot of mixing going on between the Gentiles of Canaan and the twelve tribes of Israel. So by now, the people of Beeroth were considered as members of the tribe of Benjamin, even though many of them whose real heritage were as Canaanites kept a memory of that fact by how they called themselves. That's the case we see here. Likely, 2,500 years ago and more, the situation about Beeroth was well understood by the Israelites living in the land, and so this detail was kind of an important one for them. What happens regarding these guys makes their heritage and tribal affiliation important. Well, verse 4 adds more information that it's important for to help us understand the sense of tragedy that was on the horizon. David's dearest friend, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth. And when the nurse who was in charge of Mephibosheth's care got this horrifying news that Saul and Jonathan were killed, she snatched up this five-year-old child and in a panic began to run, run, but apparently she dropped him. And he became permanently crippled as a result. Probably there was a spinal injury that happened. Mephibosheth was Saul's grandson. But his mother pay attention, was Ritzpah. Yes, the Ritzpah of Saul and Ishbosheth's harem that Abner had slept with. Now there's some disagreement on Ritzpah as his mother, but most of the ancient rabbis say he was. There is biblical evidence of it, and it helped make sense out of why Ritzpah was this prominent woman in this overall story and, and by the way some later ones as well now notice how similar 
are the names Mephi Bosheth and Ish Bosheth. We discussed how later Hebrew editors tended to replace the word Baal with the word Bosheth. Because they found using the term Baal just too offensive. I'm not going to explain all the nuances of Baal and Bosheth today. You can go back to the previous lesson. But it is thought that Mephi Bosheth means something like exterminate Baal or cut down the idol of Baal. In any case, as a son of Jonathan, there's no doubt that his name is meant to denote a good, righteous character. Later on, yet another variation of this name, by the way, Mephibosheth, is going to be found in 1 Chronicles 8 and 9, and it's Meriv Baal. Meriv Baal. Now here's the thing. The reason for this insertion of information about Mephibosheth is to explain the sadness, the great sadness of Ishbosheth's death. Okay? There is no heir to Saul's throne once Ishbosheth is dead. Mephibosheth is more or less the last person who has a close enough tie to Saul to at least qualify to be part of the royal dynasty. But there's no way that a man lame from childbirth can be made king. So the end of Saul's house is almost here. Ishbosheth's demise signals the death blow to the entire house of Saul. And in tribal society, there is no greater tragedy than that. So now we have the needed background on the players in this story. And verse 7 explains that the two sons of Ramon went to the house where Ishbosheth lived when he was taking an afternoon siesta. And they appeared to be coming to get some wheat and were likely familiar to most of the servants and guards. And as Ishbosheth lay sleeping, they assassinated him. Then they beheaded him. And then they brought his head to David. Their motive for doing this is explained in verse 8. Knowing that Abner was dead and that Ishbosheth had no hope of ruling, these two men wanted to attract David's favor by eliminating his rival for the throne. Thus, by me, this means they felt they were demonstrating their loyalty to the new king. And so they expected a high reward consisting of, a, of high positions in David's administration. But even if they were right in their claim that Saul had deserved to die because of his irrational pursuit of David, what had Ishbosheth done to deserve this treatment? A wise man, a long time ago, told me something to always keep in mind. People tend to automatically assume that others have the same mindset and character flaws that they have. They assume, these men assumed, that since they would have been thrilled if somebody had come along and, and, and had done for them what they thought they'd done for David, that David would applaud 
this treacherous and vile act. But far from rewarding them, David gave them their just rewards as murderers. He had them immediately executed. The Amalekite who killed Saul at least did so at Saul's behest, but it was still murder. No court was necessary for Bana and Rechav. They confessed it all boastfully. They murdered a king as he slept. A fellow member of the tribe of Benjamin they killed for crass gain. The law requires the life of murderers. And so what David did here was completely lawful. Yet we end this chapter with another reminder of how the Torah law had become corrupted by intermingling it with man-made Middle Eastern customs and traditions. It was right for David to execute these two murderers. But mutilation of a corpse is not right. That he cut off their hands and feet is not permitted by the law. But it was customary in that era and it was meant to be symbolic. They used their feet to run to commit this crime and their hands to do the dastardly deed. We'll start chapter 5 next week.